As you pointed out, it has been a busy week for Bitcoin hardware signing device release announcements. The one I noticed was the Trezor Orange Anniversary Edition, which is a Trezor hardware signing device. It's very orange. It's got Bitcoin only firmware. But you noticed something else about it that I did not catch. It's got a secure element. That's, you know, interesting from Trezor since they've in the past kind of poo-pooed the need for a secure element. I don't think it's totally new to them, but I, I think it's really good to see in a, like a $80 ish Bitcoin only hardware wallet. Do I have it right that the historical antithesis of Trezor towards secure elements is that Trezor is a completely open source hardware signing device or wallet and secure elements by their very nature are not open source or or, or most of them are not. There, there is like secrets in how they are designed and how they protect the secrets inside. And so there is a level of security via obscurity inside these devices. And so so Trezor sort of had a kind of a philosophical problem with incorporating a proprietary component inside their device. That was my recollection. Maybe they've got a little bit in there that's proprietary now, some blobs or, or maybe, I don't know, it's almost, if I wasn't kind of set on hardware wallets right now, I'd, I'd almost, you know, drop the 80 bucks to try this thing out. I still think overall, I'd like the whole company to be wholly focused on Bitcoin, not just the product. But this is a really good step in the direction of trying to answer, I think, what Bitcoiners have been asking for. And it's quite interesting because if you look at their lineup, the Trezor Model 1 was a pretty affordable hardware wallet. They're still selling it for $69. And it had two buttons. And I think that... One one of the issues with it compared to the cold card is that it's hard to kind of like input a pin and things into the hardware signing device. And so to really use the Trezor, you always had to connect it to a computer and the computer would show you like a grid corresponding to a dial pad. And then the hardware device itself would show you the dial pad. And so it meant that, you know, if the system worked, you'd kind of be entering the pin on the computer, but no one, even if the computer was compromised, they wouldn't know what grid corresponded to the numbers on the hardware signing device. But, you know, it requires a little complexity and it was kind of awkward to use. And so the cold card for me really nailed like, oh, I can just put the pin on on the device and I don't need a, a computer for it to be tethered to. And potentially that USB connection is compromised. Yeah, I like that too. And, you know, it's been a good week for cold card users. Uh, the Mark IV firmware 5.2.0 came out and it brings the ability to store multiple seeds on a single cold card device. So like you could have, I was thinking for my kids one cold card that has the seed for three different wallets and they're going to have a menu you know a seed vault menu item when you turn this on and you can go in there and switch between the different uh, vaults essentially and that's it i mean there's other things that came in 5.2.0 but man that's like a big one for me yeah i have to say that for me after the mark 3 cold card i kind of stopped paying attention because the mark 3 was so good that was it for me but um it's interesting to be able to have multiple seeds on a single device and reading the documents i wasn't completely sure it kind of sounds like you still have one pin that unlocks the cold card, but then you can have this blob of memory full of different seeds. And so you can go in there and find the seed, but it's not like you and me can share the same cold card. And when you put in your pin, it unlocks your seed. And when I put in my pin, it unlocks my seed. It seems still that the cold card is designed for kind of a single user, but now it can manage more seeds. That would be really nice, you know, like in my kid's scenario, because then they could just get access to it and put their own pin in. Uh, but I, I think if you're managing funds, maybe for, uh, 
a business and maybe have a couple of different Bitcoin wallets, having one cold card now for the business, that could be really nice. We've got good options. There's more and more Bitcoin hardware getting developed right now and more integrations with different services and just more and more like really good kind of competing options that make me go, gosh, I'd kind of like to buy that and try that. I'm kind of all in on the cold card, but I, I don't know. I, I like the Jade. I like what they're doing over there. I like what uh, Jack's working on too with his his hardware device, that kind of little puck thing with the fingerprint reader. That looks pretty slick too. So we're going to have some good options in you know the future. We're just spoiled soon. And I think it's pretty interesting that Swan is partnering with Blockstream for their Vault product. And the Swan Vault seems to be some kind of collaborative custody model where it's your Bitcoin wallet, but someone, probably Swan or a Swan delegate, is contributing a key to a multi-sig wallet. And so you control the wallet. You've got at least two of the keys. Someone else has another key and they can use that key to help you sign if you lose one of yours. And so this provides a bit of hand-holding for people who are anxious about the level of personal responsibility of managing. Yeah. I could also see this being helpful in the spousal approval factor for spending a serious amount of money on stacking, right? Because you could stack with Swan and you can have that go to this multi-custody vault that they have. And, you know, one spousal unit could keep a key. The other spousal unit could keep a key and Swan has the key. And then if one spousal unit deceases, you know, the other spousal unit has a clear path of action to get access to those funds. That is an approach because that is a big question that we've talked about before. How do you prepare your cold stash of Bitcoin for your passing? How do you both protect the secret that secures those Bitcoin, but also make it accessible to your wife or significant other when they need it? I would argue that if they have confidence that they do have access to it in a tragic event, they're going to be more on board with using it as a savings technology. I agree. Because as I've seen with deploying Linux at home, my wife is happy to humor me in using some of the solutions that I've rolled out, namely Nextcloud for private file share and documents and and that kind of thing. But it does make her very reliant on me to troubleshoot problems she's having. And if you add kind of a monetary element to that too, you know, there's always going to be one partner. And at this point in history, it's probably going to be the husband who's more into Bitcoin. And now it's like, okay, so there's going to be another important part of our life together that's financial and you're going to be the one controlling it. Like you can make a lot of good arguments for Bitcoin, but you also want to make it so that everyone in the relationship feels comfortable with it, feels like they have a a say doesn't feel like they're being railroaded into something that they're just a little uncomfortable with. There's just going to be a massive customer base that wants a 1-800 number they can call in an emergency. And, you know, that's going to be a successful product. Maybe Swan's onto something here. I don't really understand how their vault product works. I'd like to know about the Swan vault product a little more. If anybody out there in the audience has seen any technical details, is this something Swan is self-hosting and built? Is this a a front end to another back end custody service? Kind of would love to know those technical details if they shared them. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on Thursday, October 12th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here remotely as I usually am with (laughs) me. It's Chris. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Do you think that's fun when we slightly modify the beginning like it like it trips up the longtime listener and they're like, oh, I just hope we never just have a routine that's so baked in and generic that we're just doing it automatically. Because then that's just boring. I've also heard that some people love podcasts where two hosts always have the exact same greeting. Like it might have been recorded, but they feel like it's not. They just always do the exact same thing. We could always do a little A-B testing. It sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. We should probably just stick to focusing on the pod. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I think this has been kind of a slow news week in that the Sam Bankman-Fried FTX trial, which by the way, is just the first of many trials he will experience because he's not on trial for all of the bribes and foreign corruption that is alleged Sam Bankman-Fried authorized and, and engaged in. So it's just sucking the air out of the room, I think. And that's why I was kind of surprised to see the Bitcoin hardware launches, because generally speaking, you don't announce things in weeks when something is consuming all of the news attention. But as a result, there's a lot of Sam Bankman-Fried. There's also a new paper about something called BitVM, which is a way to create Turing-complete smart contracts on Bitcoin, which is kind of an interesting idea, but has a lot of practical limitations. There is some economics news, specifically some rumblings in the mortgage markets, which we have uh, talked about in the past as a potential source of the next financial crisis. And then we've got some boosts, and that's our show. It's going to be a nice, tidy pod. Well, of course, I say that, then you never know. We could get to some long tangents, but... Who, us? Let's entertain some of this FTX stuff. I think with the understanding that this is something that isn't probably going to long-term be important to Bitcoin, but it is something the normies will always remember. And it is on every morning show. So we're recording a day early this week. And I was, we record a little later in the morning. So I got to tune, tune into the morning shows and I tuned into ABC, CBS, Bloomberg, CNBC, and CBS, if I didn't say that one. The only one I didn't check was NBC because I didn't have time. They were all talking about Sam, Caroline, and FTX. All of them. It is wall to wall this morning on the Normie News, and there's all of the scandals and the crypto king falls and all this kind of stuff. So it seems like maybe we should provide some analysis on the situation. But again, with the recognition that so that way we're kind of informed and prepared for the conversation we're going to have with the normal folks out there when the Bitcoin conversation comes up. Just last night, we had a family member. The conversation of Bitcoin came up because we were talking about El Salvador and her first response was, oh, Bitcoin. Yeah, didn't they just have some big scam with that Sam guy? So the Normies are aware of the story, but they're not fully informed about it. And there's a lot of nuance to it and a lot of drama. Does it make sense to summarize the history? Do we think anyone hasn't been following this? Hmm. Is there like an elevator history about, so we had FTX and Alameda Research, two separate companies that were basically operating as one. Sam Bankman-Fried was the CEO of FTX, but he essentially was also the boss of Alameda, even though his girlfriend, Caroline, was supposed to be running it. And he had founded Alameda and then he sort of gave it to someone else to run and then started the FTX crypto exchange. And Alameda was a trading company, and they claimed to be wildly successful, kind of like Three Arrows Capital, which is another famous trading company in crypto that exploded and took down a lot of the industry. And Alameda, their sort of claim to fame was that they were doing the kimchi arbitrage trade. They claimed that they had a way to move dollars into capital-restricted East Asian economies, mainly Japan and Korea, and they were able to therefore sell crypto at the higher local prices in those companies for dollars, get those dollars out, buy more crypto, send it in, rinse and repeat. And I think that that was a very dubious claim because the reason that those economies had local premiums was there are dollar capital controls and getting around those capital controls are really difficult and require a lot of kind of political assistance. And it wasn't clear that they had that. And the other notable thing about Sam Bankman-Fried is that he was kind of a darling of a certain sort of, the term educated elite is a little loaded 
good, but I think that's accurate in this case with Sam because he was a effective altruist. He was interested in utilitarian philosophy. Yeah. I would also say maybe the term, the financial technical elite, you know, the people, the VCs, your Sequoias, your Chamoths. Exactly. He's like a private technocrat. Yeah. They were big there. He had this idea that he was so smart and had like a better model for reality than the rest of us and was therefore exempt from morality and laws that smaller, lesser people had to follow. And that was pretty clear from a lot of his interviews. And one thing that I thought was striking about Sam was that the things he said about Bitcoin and crypto were incredibly naive. Like they just did, they seemed like this guy is a real noob. And I don't understand why he's considered such a genius, because if you listen to the things he says, they're really bad. And then there was a famous Odd Lots podcast episode where they were interviewing Sam and they're saying, hey, uh, can you explain like this weird cryptocurrency you have on your exchange that you're maybe involved with? Or how, how exactly does that work? And he's like, well, imagine that there's like a box and you put money into the box and then I take money out of the box and then, you know, people put it in and they take money out. Like that's, it's just a construct. And as you're listening to that, you're like, um, Sam, that's a Ponzi scheme. You're describing a Ponzi scheme. You're describing taking money from some people to pay other people. Raised our red flags after that. I remember it was on our, that moment put him on our radar solidly. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. And, you know, in court, Caroline testified that he, he didn't feel like lying was one of the rules that applied to him because he had like his own set of moral compasses. And then the other thing that she said is that she shared that they would have internal and external version of Alameda's balance sheets. They showed a spreadsheet in court yesterday as we record, and there was the actual internal numbers. And then she produced seven alternative versions. These were all different tabs of the spreadsheet. And Sam chose version seven, which was just a total BS set of numbers that they would then share with folks that are trying to get loans from. When you have multiple versions of your accounting records, that's fraud. That's a fraud thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's just fraud right there. And, and you know, Caroline has testified that he pressured her to make these, that he knew what he was doing. She's already pleaded guilty too. So I think this is part of that plea. And she also testified that they would routinely just do $500 million size transactions with companies like Genesis just conducted over Telegram, no like official paperwork, just, hey, can you send us $500 million? That is absolutely wild. And I think that kind of encapsulates what's going on in this trial. There's just a lot of schadenfreude crazy details. And so if you are a creditor of FTX, you must be feeling very angry and very silly because they were just complete yahoos. They didn't know yeah. And they tricked everyone into... They were fraudsters. Yeah, that they were competent. But also, you know, it was the wider crypto industry. I mean, Genesis worked with these people in a very sloppy fashion. And we knew that Genesis was also a joke because Genesis was engaging in massive loans with Three Arrows Capital with very little documentation. You know, you don't send someone hundreds of millions of dollars based on an email. There should be a contract, right? There should be, probably be a face-to-face meeting, you know, to <laughs> confirm it. And, and there was none of that. And so this is very much a spectacle. But I don't think that there's too much here that's really going going to affect legal precedent in crypto. This is a fraud trial. The crypto element is kind of just a detail in that. It could be positive long term. Because with some time between this trial and future ETF marketing efforts, you could almost see this as the moment crypto was cleaned up. You know, the, you could see the public opinion turning as digital assets become more serious after crypto has been cleaned up and the fraudsters like SBF have been cleaned out. So it could potentially improve the narrative long term because they're kind of pinning all of this on Sam. 
And I think for me, another interesting narrative here is that Sam was a real darling of the Silicon Valley crypto venture crowd. The VC DGENs, as I call them. I never respected that group. I just think that they, they spoke in marketing. They were not truthful in sharing the value propositions for their investments. They were all about pumping and dumping on people coming after them and YOLOing into things that they were promoting. And so I think that for me, at least, it's a bit satisfying to see what a joke they were investing in because Sam's operation has, I mean, it has so many red flags. It seems hard to understand how the yeah. investors and lenders to Alameda and FTX didn't get wind of the fact that they were dealing with fraudsters, criminals. I mean, they were intentionally trying to use, this came out in like the court too, they were trying to use the identities of Thai hookers on the platform uh, to, to make it look like different identities. But that's just straight up identity theft and fraud. And the some of the most famous VC DGENs in the world were financing this. Their money was helping finance this. And I guess my last favorite detail that came out in testimony is that Sam thought, and I'm not making this up, it's in the court transcript, he thought he would become president of the United States one day. Well, to be fair, he thought there was a 5% chance. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's He did say that. Maybe he just had to keep buying off politicians to raise that number, I suppose. <laughs> All right. There's, you know what, there's links in the show notes. There's lots of coverage of this. I don't know if we need to dwell on it, really, because there's been some interesting technical discussions in the Bitcoin community this week. And in particular, a paper has dropped about BitVM, a way to create Turing-complete smart contracts on Bitcoin. And I think there is a TLDR and a more in-depth analysis. What should we start with? Oh, I'd love to hear your TLDR because um, this is this has been, I think, at first it was really complicated. So if people are just hearing about BitVM as this episode comes out, they've probably just seen the really complicated explanation so far. So the TLDR is that this is a very interesting paper. It identifies a logical structure you can create with BitVM Bitcoin opcodes. And then it takes this logical structure and it generalizes that to very complicated logic. The restrictions are this contract would only be applicable between two parties. So it's very different than Ethereum type smart contracts where you can say create a contract that anyone can interact with, uh, like these pool protocols where you deposit some assets and then the pool generates a token and then you can you, you can trade the token or you can sort of put it back in the pool and get your asset out, you know, things like that. So this is much more limited. There's basically a verifier and a something. There are two parties involved in these contracts and they have to do the computation off chain and then they're verifying it on chain by selectively revealing parts of a very large taproot tree where all of this logic is encoded in the sort of leaves and branches. So what that means is this is not really particularly useful in my opinion right now on Bitcoin because it would require so much on-chain footprint that it would be very expensive to enforce. And so that means that whatever you'd be encoding in this contract would have to be incredibly valuable and require the sort of decentralization of Bitcoin to sort of uh, engage in this contract, which you know, is probably not necessary today in that if you have a lot of money and you want to engage in like a very complicated financial transaction, you can usually find an investment bank that's going to help you with that. Or if you have Ethereum, there's probably a smart contract that can do that for you. But right now, 
on Bitcoin, that would be very costly, very complex. And, you know, obviously no one knows how to do this yet. It's just a concept so far. If I understand it, though, it does seem positive in the sense that it, it could essentially be done with existing Bitcoin technology. We don't need to create a side chain. Uh, we don't have to necessarily do any hard forks or soft forks, I, right? The, the technology is there. It's just limited in its current. Essentially, if in theory, if you were to stack it all together, it's limited in what it can do. Right. But it's there today in a sense, right? Like you don't have to build anything new. Yeah. Yeah, but it's quite stupid or I mean, maybe it's brilliant, but what it's doing is you can create a, a NOR gate, which is a logical construct. It's like a binary gate. So if you put in one, one, it gives zero. If you put in zero, zero, it gives one. If you put in one, zero, it gives one, I think. So this gate is interesting because you can combine this gate in different ways to create all of the other logical operators. And so it means you can, you know, perform like byte logic. I mean, this is you know, basically a simple simple computer, computer logic using this simple construct. And you can put it, you can put the logic and the outcomes you'd, you'd want in a taproot tree. And so that means that a taproot tree, the, the root hash is you know just a hash that you can put on the blockchain. It's pretty small. But when you start unfurling that tree, now the amount of data you're putting on the blockchain gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so it's not really practical. It also is limited to two parties and it's static. You know, it's like a one-time use uh, contract. It's not like a, a protocol like Tornado Cash that people put funds in, take funds out. You know, it's like this living thing, you know, that sort of lives on the blockchain. This is kind of like publishing a contract on Bitcoin and then sort of slowly revealing the clauses if you need to enforce them on chain. Okay. See, I was wondering if this could be implemented on, say, something like RoboSats. Instead of like a RoboSats escrow, it's essentially an on-chain contract. And once both parties say yes, and, you know, the logic gets sent that the transaction is complete and both parties are happy, then the funds get on locked and put in somebody's wallet or something like that. Could it could it do a function like that, do you suppose? Yeah, I think so. But I don't think you need something so general for what you're describing. I mean, I think sure. yeah. Musig or Frost, these new taproot uh, signing schemes would be sufficient yeah, they, they, for that. Yeah. Because I was just trying to wrap my head around the functionality because I think honestly, dad, and I mean, not to make this like EVM, but for this to really, really, truly be useful, you'd almost have to have like, you know, a, a language people already know or something that they could write in, even if it was very simple and then plug it in for this to really go mainstream. It, 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 I'm not saying like JavaScript or something, but something almost human writable. You write it out simple and you, you plug it in and then maybe it gets converted into something else. But it feels like it's never really going to reach any kind of wide adoption without that layer taking care. I mean, I think this is a slow news week. And so this is a kind of sort of esoteric, uh, you know, technical paper that might not have been particularly interesting in other weeks. But, you know, there's not an, a lot happening outside of the... I don't know. No? I I'm seeing a lot of bullish sentiment on this. I'm seeing people talk about how, like, a lot of people say the majority of the limitations that you've mentioned are probably solvable, especially if we're okay with some new opcode stuff. And, like, the beauty thing of it is because it's so simple now, it can probably be built on over time. I've seen a lot of people feeling like this BitVM stuff's going to be around for a while, uh, but it's just going to be a slow burn. I mean, I think that maybe that's true. I mean, I obviously do not, you know, I'm not, like, fully versed in how interesting this is. I mean, they're, from what I've read, this is operating on a very basic level, like you're designing a logical circuit, you would yeah, need yeah. billions of these gates to do more complicated things, which means hundreds of Bitcoin transactions to resolve a two-party yeah. contract. That just does not seem particularly efficient. When I yeah, see I things like that, yeah. 
this kind of makes me think, okay, Bitcoin doesn't seem to be able or ready or interested in layer two solutions like a drive chain, which obviously, you know, there's a um, minor incentive issue or another soft fork, like a covenant soft fork that would enable layer twos like Arc. The sort of lightning alternative with a constant on-chain footprint that Barack proposed. And so what do you do? Well, if we're limited to what we have, we can encode a logical circuit contract in a tree, put the hash on chain, and then do the computation off-chain. And hopefully we don't have to resolve this on-chain because it would take a hundred transactions. You know, that seems like not so interesting to me, but you know, maybe you can make it much more efficient and suddenly this becomes useful. I I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Um, maybe it only gets used during those low fee seasons like ordinals. If you're a vision learner there is a bit vm explained in four slides link in the show notes you shared a really interesting article from newsweek that points out that in this higher rate environment many applicants for mortgages to purchase residential housing are getting arms adjustable rate mortgages and i believe this was the sort of adjustable rate mortgage that led to a lot of people defaulting on their mortgage during the 2008 housing crisis in the united states and i don't think they've been popular since then partially because interest rates have just been so low. I completely agree with that trend. I, I watched uh, a couple here in the neighborhood at the studio that really, really kind of just were shocked at their APR skyrocketing and they ended up um, foreclosing on their home. In 2008? Correct, correct. And I just am a little alarmed at the rate that it seems that ARM applications are surging. We have a report here that says they're up 15% in the last week. And of course, the trend is up overall for the year. Uh, and it's, I think you're right, it's a response to the higher rates. That, But there is a sort of an implied risk Calculation that these homeowners are taking, and that is that the rates will go down in the near future, or maybe in a few years, and they can refi. I suppose. I guess. Gamble. I guess this gets to the view that demand for housing is inelastic. People need a place to live, and there are just some people that have to buy a house now, and so they have to make current cash flows and financing and financing options work. And so, an adjustable rate mortgage might make sense there because, generally speaking, they start with kind of an introductory lower rate, and then the rate kind of spikes up later and surprises you. And so, I've always viewed ARM mortgages in the U.S. context as very predatory instruments. Because if you're getting an adjustable rate mortgage, it probably means you can't afford the payments on a fixed rate mortgage, which means you won't be able to afford the payments when the adjustable rate mortgage increases. Adjust. Yeah. You know, but that's so, going to be true for so many folks right now with the interest rate, what it is and the home prices, what they are. Like put yourself in this scenario. Would you bet today, if you were say, you know, you and the wife were buying a home, would you bet that the rates are going to go down in two, three years? I think it's actually a pretty reasonable bet. Yeah. It has been indicated by the inversion of the US Treasury curve over the past few years, though long-term rates have surged up recently, which, you know, there are many reasons for that. But um, you know, that also does sort of play into the higher for longer uh, narrative of the Fed being able to keep rates higher for a longer period, which at this point is expected to be into next year, which is not that long. So I guess I could make a calculation where I might get an arm and be able to survive the next two years and then wait for rates to fall and refinance. That might make sense for some people. Obviously, there is some risk there because we've already seen that the Federal Reserve is kind of engaged in a credibility battle right now. And so keeping rates high has become a point of almost pride with Jay Powell 
and the Federal Reserve, such that they're not being motivated by the so-called inflation target or full employment mandate or anything like that. They're kind of picking and choosing data points to look at with the goal of appearing as tough as possible. So the quote-unquote market takes the Fed seriously. To me, that suggests like we don't really know what these people are going to do because this is quite emotional, right. decision-making going on. To me, and you can't put a timeline on it. A few years seems reasonable, but they have to hold higher for as long as they can. As they say in the biz, the CPI print came in above expectations at 3.7% for September. Uh, they expected 3.6. That makes it the third consecutive monthly increase in inflation. So that's going to be something the Fed is monitoring. It's even worse depending how you break it down, right? Car insurance inflation, 18.9%. Car repair, 10.2%. Homeowner inflation sort of slowing down at 7.1%. Food away from home home is at 6%, meat and poultry is at 4.8%, rent at 7.4%. But you know, this is cumulative at this point, Dad. We're talking now, what are we, two, three years into this inflationary cycle? These numbers accumulate. It's not just like if the number goes down a little bit, it's still not like the prices are going down. It's just the rate of increase is going down. And the prices are still overall nominally rising, which means overall affordably affordability, which means overall affordability for all of us is getting worse. Even though, like, yeah, okay, it's at 3.7% for what they monitor in the CPI. It's, I guess my core point is, is like, it's, it's pretty bad. We're, we're like three years into this and we're still seeing price increases and they're going to have to hold it for absolutely as long as they can, as high as they can. And we're probably around there. It, it may just end up being a pause, a really prolonged pause at this rate for a while. And when you say that you think that the Fed needs to hold the Fed funds rate as high as they can, as long as they can, is this because you think that this is a point of pride and credibility? with the Federal Reserve. They've tied their legitimacy to inflation numbers coming down. And so they have to take actions to make it seem like they are bringing these numbers down. Like, is that the motivation? Or do you think that they actually can bring these numbers down and that their, their actions actually are reducing inflation? I mean, I suppose they probably do have some impact on demand and and inflation, but I think it's primarily for legitimacy. And then also, like we've talked about before, there's just not a lot of levers they do have. So if they have some sort of mandate to try to get a handle on this and they can only tweak so many things at, in the, at the macro level, they really have, you know, they have really few other choices but to try this. I also don't really have any strong opinions about it, but I do wonder if there's some sort of global geopolitical game being played here, you know, by, by driving driving up the Dixie and by by creating demand for dollars and by creating this sort of rush to the dollar over the last few years, that's been, it just feels like the timing with the war in Ukraine and, and the situation with China and Russia, it just feels like the timing of this, there may be some sort of geopolitical aspect of it too. And then of course, with the Saudis and, and their use of the dollar and the price of oil, it just, I wonder if there's more, more dynamics to while they're, they're to their rate approach than what they're sharing with us in their, in their, you know, public statements. I would take the counter to that point of view, just because I think that, they're, I mean, they're very limited in the things they look at and in their priorities. I, I think it's much more ad hoc flying by the seat of your pants. I'm just very skeptical that there's a lot of long-term thinking anywhere in government or even business. If I, You know what? If I was Jay Powell, I'd be watching Bitcoin. I'd be watching if people are aping into Bitcoin or not as a signal on the health of the market. And as, as long as people are willing to spend money on cryptocurrency, then they haven't felt enough 
pain. The lower Bitcoin goes, the better Jay Powell is doing, in my opinion, because Bitcoin definitely has product market fit as a long-term savings technology and a payment layer when you're doing a transaction that no one else really wants you to do or will let you do. So if the price of Bitcoin is going up, there has to be some element of that that suggests the overall availability of liquidity. I mean, if people are spending money, there's that means there's, you know, I mean, it means people are more comfortable. They're willing to take on a risk asset. I don't see it that way. Okay. I'm, I'm just talking about it from like Wall Street big money. Okay. So Wall Street big money perspective, there's a view, I've heard it called market nihilism, where there's no fundamental value to any asset. Everything is just a question of liquidity. And so if we can understand liquidity, where it comes from and where it goes, then we can trade and we can make money. And so when Bitcoin goes up, that just means that there is liquidity in financial markets and it's moving into risk assets and Bitcoin is one of those risk assets. And I think that- yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was saying. And, and I, if, if, you be- if you believe that, then if you were J-Pow, wouldn't you be watching that? So I think that's just one model. I have a different model in that I think that, sure, there is a lot of trading activity that is very liquidity driven. It's very sentiment based. I mean, we know there are hedge funds that do this and they borrow money and they have various machine learning systems that analyze sentiment and then they buy stocks based on this sentiment. It's nuts. It does doesn't tell us anything particularly meaningful about the world in the price action that's driven by activity like that. It's just trading. It's just noise in a certain sense. But yeah. I think that if we step back and we say, okay, we can actually understand what Bitcoin does as a technology. It's a way to represent value in a way that cannot be inflated by monetary policy or fiscal policy. It has property rights that don't need a legal authority to enforce. This is a call on the current system. This is insurance on a much cheaper trust-based economic and property rights model, which is provided by many countries in the world. Does that make sense? And so if the price of Bitcoin is going up consistently and not going down, it means that there is a constant bid for insurance on a managed economy and the property rights provided by it. I, I totally agree. I Do you think, now tying this back to my comment, do you think they could be insightful enough there at the uh, Federal Reserve to be thinking about Bitcoin in that way and watching the price as a signal for that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Because I think that it's very difficult to kind of be humble and be open to new ideas as you climb a hierarchy. I think that you have a lot of kind of short-term responsibilities, rituals, things you have to do as you're sort of like the big boss in an institution or as you become a part of uh, like a, a group that functions like that. And I think it's very hard to look outside the group to sort of abandon the group think that inevitably results and to, you know, have a you know, like a humble, open-minded, interested mind to the world. I think that's very difficult. I think you see that as people stay in these roles, the longer they stay in these roles, they tend to just repeat themselves and kind of behave like they did five years ago. So I don't think that anyone at the Fed is thinking along the lines that we are and open to that. Thank goodness. (laughs) Let's keep it that way. (laughs) I feel a little bit better thinking that. Well, this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pods brought to you by my podcast network, jupiterbroadcasting.com. We got some new pods over there. Mike breaks the build, go to Radio 539. Oh, Mike tells us a story, a painful story about a project he's working on. And then we get into some of the stories that aren't being covered about Mr. Sam Altman of OpenAI. And then in Linux Unplugged 531, we took the Windows 11 challenge. We ran Windows 11 as Linux users for one week and we report back. That and more at jupiterbroadcasting.com. I thought that was very fair. The Windows 
coverage you gave because the Windows 11 Windows Manager is pretty okay in many ways. Everything else, of course, is pretty annoying. Yeah, you know, my previous experiences with Windows, I always felt like it was fairly snappy. Now, I'm on an older hard... I was using an older laptop kind of intentionally just because I knew that was kind of a, a gray area for Windows 11. But it's really fascinating to A, B, a machine that you've ran Linux for its entire life and then put Windows on it for a week and everything was slower. But the other thing that I noticed is a lot of the uh, chat apps like Element and Slack and Telegram use way more resources when they're active on Windows, like a steady 10, 20% of the CPU. And that's just not a problem I have on Linux. They just don't, they don't do that on Linux and the system runs a lot faster. I, I was surprised. I mean, some things are really still great about Windows 11, but I was just surprised by that big difference. Yeah, I actually kind of think about the performance difference a lot because I walk by at work piles of laptops that are being decommissioned and they're the same model as the laptop I'm recording this on. <laughs> you know, with OpenSUSE Tumbleweed and a Plasma desktop, this laptop, which is 12 years old, it behaves like a premium PC for me. And yeah. I mean, this thing, you can't run Windows on this anymore. And you probably could, you know, would, would really uh, suffer a lot of performance issues five years ago. Yeah. And it's not like I'm running like some low resources version of Linux. I'm running like right now, 2310 just came out today and I'm running that with GNOME 45. And it's it's just really smooth. <laughs> I don't know. Well, we'd like to know what you think about anything we've talked about in the show. You can always get in touch with us, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or on WeaponX at BitcoinDadPod. Or why not join the chat room? Lots of little news stories, chats, all that kind of going on. All all week long. Links to that are in the show notes. And with that, we have some boosts. And our first boost is from the Mere Mortals podcast. A row of ducks, 2,222 sats. I watched three or four recent Arthur Hayes interviews just before this came out. Half of them, he seems to know what he's talking about, but that token presentation was pretty gross. Asking people to pump your bags, even in a joking form, comes across so bad. And he's not great at joking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have to say that when I listen to interviews of Arthur, I am sometimes struck by how weird he is. I consume news and information and blog posts practically as a living, and I cannot read Arthur's blog posts. I have to have you read them for us. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's just like this. I, I can't even parse it sometimes. You, you know, it's, 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 it's a, true. I read his I read all of his kind of offhand statements and I just throw them away and I, I just focus on trying on sort of like the core of what he's trying yeah. to say. But in person, you know, he's like very interested in stuffed animals. He travels with um, like extra suitcases full of plushy stuffed animals that he likes. I mean, it's just it's I mean, I have to say it's pretty weird, you know, I kinda, you know, he <laughs> seems like the kind of guy I'd love to have dinner with, you know, just sit down and talk to him for an evening over a beer and a meal. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it would just be beer, though. I mean, I think yeah, he likes to fun. party. So I'm <laughs> totally down, Arthur. Like, let's bring all the plush toys you want and you know, we can just go at it. Yeah, send us a boost. We'll set it up. Halleck comes in. Uh, he is our baller this week. It was kind of, uh, it wasn't a great week, but Halleck came in with 10,000 sats using Fountain. He says, I'm so on board with the criticisms from episode 103. I can't help but wonder if these fundamentally flawed ideas win anyways, at least in the near to midterm, just because the hype cycles generate a network effect and subsequently they, that creates bag holders. Uh, we can be right, but early, but we look like idiots to the rest of the world. We're talking about uh, us moaning about Ethereum. How However, you know, what's kind of funny, Dad, is while we were kind of moaning about Ethereum, maybe going to make it and the ETF, the price action has been bad. I mean, Ethereum has been bleeding to Bitcoin all year and Vitalik just dumped at the recent market high right after it slid. And it just really hasn't been very good since the merge. Classic Vitalik. 
Yeah, they nailed it. He nailed it once again. And the Consensus Foundation sold some ETH too, I think. Right at the right at the local top. Always sell when Vitalik <laughs> yes. is selling. It know? hasn't been good. And then the day the bit VM news came out, it continued Ethereum's price continued to slide. And it's also been inflationary for quite a while now, too. So I think uh the jury's still out there, Halleck. But thank you very much for the boost. I'd like to take credit for the Ethereum slide. All the universe needed was for us to throw in the towel on Ethereum yeah. for situation to change and us to look stupid so I the think. dad pot effect zoresmi sent in 5,000 sats with no message or maybe the message was a question mark the episode mm. title was trustee me so so maybe that was a there's a message in that i think so it's it's a fact that maybe maybe it's very profound thank you thank you for the boost oppie 1984 came in with 4,000 sats and oppie boosted in 4,000 sats no note is his message <laughs> that's a note oppie that i is, see what you tried to do there i like that it is so meta that is so that meta. is that is. We also received some boosts that were under our limit, and we don't read them out, but we really appreciate them. If you didn't hear your boost this week, we are recording a day early, so we might make it into the next. We will make it into the next episode. It wasn't a big support week. Now you think about what the Dad Pod's doing here, helping you sort out the things coming down the pipe and thinking about Bitcoin in the right way. It's a pretty big value. So if you've gotten some value from the show, please consider sending it back. You can use a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain has a 1.0 just around the corner. It's really cooking up pod fans is coming along podverse is developer has now gone full-time for at least the next three months they left their day job and they're going all in on podverse so the apps are really humming these days if you haven't checked them out in a while wait podverse was a part-time project yeah I, him and his brother um were the and then of course community contributions some which came from the jb community but uh yeah otherwise part-time. i know he's been working on it for years and years and so he's going to really try to to make it sing for a bit it's just such an exciting time for those apps so if you haven't tried them it's great because they got the boost button right there otherwise get albie Top it off directly, either in the app using like MoonPay, or you can do on-chain or RoboSats or Lightning, whatever you want. Just get Albi.com, then you boost from the Index's website. Or Fountain FM, you can also boost from their website now. We'll have links in the show notes. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We had seven boosters, and we stacked 23,322 sats total. Well, I have to say, this felt like kind of a light week, so a light boost week doesn't make me feel guilty, you know? If well, it but was... that's for last week. Oh, this week, I know. This was for last <laughs> week? Yeah. You guys need well, to I mean, pick it up. You need to pick it up, episode. y'all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Well, you know, and we maybe we should think about what we should ask people to boost in about. Because like we talked about Sam, I'd like to know if, they, if they'd prefer we just don't bother covering that, you know, because it's getting covered. Or do they want to hear a take on it? Those types of things are always things I welcome for boosts. So if you hear something in the show and you want to hear more of it or less of it, send it in gently via a boost. We take that very seriously. I actually also had a question for you, Chris, because I ran into a friend last night who asked me for a recommendation for an iOS Bitcoin wallet. And I had to kind of Google around. And I came away with, well, Blockstream Green Wallet is on iOS. And, you know, I've used their desktop wallet and I think it was fine and their Android wallet. So that one's probably okay. But I didn't have a strong opinion. I'm wondering if you have a go-to iOS Bitcoin wallet recommendation. I think these days I'm I'm recommending Phoenix Wallet to anybody who who wants to, you know, manage it themselves and isn't like going to just use the Cash App. My next kind of step is Phoenix Wallet, those types of things. Um, I, I really like Zeus on Android. So that's always like the one I... I kind of have the the strongest preference for. But if you're on iOS, I have used Phoenix and I like it a lot. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on October 12th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as usual remotely with me, Chris, now wondering what is the best Bitcoin iOS wallet with lightning support. See you next time.